where I'm heading. I won't say it exactly the same. I'll try to change it up a little. Because <laughs> I have no clue what I just said. <laughs> All right. So now, that's okay. Thank you so much. Hey, now, are we on record now? Okay. Lovely. All right. Good morning. <laughs> Let's begin again. <laughs> okay. So we are going to break down 1 Corinthians 7 using our inductive tools. We have a little toolbox. We're going to go back into that toolbox, and we are going to say to ourselves, what tools can I pull out that are going to help me to unravel and understand better what 1 Corinthians 7 is covering? It's a little bit loud back there. It needs to go, the sound needs to go down a smidge. Okay, and so for this particular book, even though your um, workbook, your precept workbook does not have instructions for doing what I'm going to take you through, it is what helped me to come to sound interpretation. So once you learn all the possibilities that are out there for you to utilize, you'll start dipping into that toolbox yourself and you won't necessarily have to just follow her curriculum. Sometimes I can get all my homework done and then go look at the curriculum and see what I was supposed to do and I've done most of it and, and more even. So that's the goal for you. My goal is to equip you so that one day you can do inductive study without the requirement of even a book. I want you to be able to go on the mission field. I want you to go out into other Bible study scenarios. I want you to be able to go out into the world. And I want you to, to learn these tools well enough that you can go into the back of your little brain, sh rattle around your toolbox and say, how am I going to answer this question? Or how am I going to come to interpretation? Or how am I going to deal with this situation? Number one, never violate known doctrine. Number two, let your immediate context rule for interpretation are your two pillars, right? And then at, beyond that then, if you're struggling to come to in understanding in something, you have to kind of reason through what is, seems to be the barrier here. So what I saw the barrier for me was is Paul seemed to be schizophrenic. <laughs> he would, on the one hand, say you can do this, and the other, other sound he hand he would say you can do that it was almost like it's open for whatever you know the answer was well whatever which kind of makes you feel a little bit like there's not quite a sound answer to it but there is if you understand his mindset so that's what we need to do is we need to address what is Paul's mindset so in order to get there we're going to have to look at Paul and the motives that he's showing to us through the writing of this chapter um, what his goal is or what his priority was, okay? So we're going to make a list on that. Um, the other thing that we need to understand is this issue that he has about um, I say this but not the Lord or the Lord says this but not I and yet I'm saying it, right? <laughs> and so we need to look at that more clearly because Paul's authority in what we now have is the canonized written word of God is the authority of God, as we know. You and I know that all scripture is inspired by God, right? And since it's all inspired by God, 1 Corinthians 7 is inspired in God by God. And so we need to talk through at least to clarify in our minds when Paul says, I say this, not the Lord, or this is my opinion, what does he mean by that? Does that mean his opinion is not that valuable, or does that mean we can do it or not do it. I mean, what does he mean by that? We're going to clarify that for you, okay? So we're going to talk on that subject. And we have to go back in order to really understand what he's addressing with each of these groups. We have to understand the historical setting into which Paul is speaking. 
these Corinthians are uh, in a city in Corinth, which is Greece. It is governed by Rome, so it's under Roman law. Plus, there are also the multicultural issues that are going on. So we're going to take a look at that because once you see some of their laws and understand kind of how the people were living in that time, then when you go back through and look at each of these people groups and the instructions to them, they make sense. But they don't make total sense without that knowledge. So we're going to look at that as well. Okay? Good? On your market set go, right? Okay, good. All right, so let's start first with the, the uh, historical background information, just to do that first, and that's going to make a world of difference. I made myself a note. When the biblical or when the historical background of the uh, Corinthian Christians is investigated for context, it throws much needed light on this passage. Okay, it's going to make so much more sense once you see these points. So, on day five, Kay said, please go to your commentaries and read and see what more insights you can get, right? Did any of you go to look at historical information concerning things that have to do with marriage or Rome at the time or Corinth at that time in history? Did anybody happen to do that? Very good. We know that he keeps making this reference about the concerning these distressing times or these trialing, trialing times, whatever. So, yes, okay. So there's some issues going on where geopolitical, cultural, there is an attack against family. Now, we can't relate to that, right? The family life and marriage and the, and the family unit, that's not under attack for us today, right? Yeah, no, not at all, right? The answer is no, that's crazy. Of course we are. We still have this. So, so again, it's like, like always, it seems like even though we feel like we're the first generation and things have never been this bad, guess what? That's not really true. It's always bad. And, so, and quite honestly, when you and I did our Kings and Prophets study, when you, you remember some of the things that they were doing, like, for instance, in times of war, beheading people and piling bodies high and burning them on the... I mean, boy, talk about horrible. We, I would say that we are probably, as human beings, still just as depraved and just as sinful as we ever were. So that's a very good point to keep in mind, that they, like we today, had, a, had an attack against the, the unit of the family and against also purity, because, although he didn't quite put it that way, but the concept of purity because of cultural influences, right? So let's make a list here. What about Corinth? in Paul's day. We'll start with that. And we're just going to make a couple of points. <clears throat> we know that it was a Roman colony. Right? Therefore, with Roman law. Um, we also know geographically, where was it located? And what made it so multicultural? Yeah. Yep, it was a port city. Yes, it really was a major port city. And because of that, it, it brings in lots of multicultural influences. 
That's important to kind of keep in mind at that time. And besides the multicultural influences, what else do we know about Corinth concerning the religion in that day? Lots of temples. As a matter of fact, they say that Corinth almost rivaled, but not quite, um, Athens with all of the various kinds of God and goddess worships that were going on there. Um, so that has to be considered also because, interestingly, I remember when we were studying Acts that when laws were made, there were certain kinds of things that pertain to the religions that were going on at the time. One of the things that, one of the Roman laws, do you remember, was that you could not, um, I don't want to say develop, but you could not institute a new religion. They would not allow you to do that. It had to be something that was already established and uh, and approved of and had its stamp of approval by Rome. So you couldn't just come up with a new thing, which was why, for instance, Paul had to go before Gallio, right, and, and, and defend himself. And what Gallio said to him was, no, this is not a new religion. This is, this is between you and the Jews. This has to do with the roots of the Ju- uh, Judaism because out of Judaism came this Messiah that they were looking for, and that's who Paul was claiming he was following. So it was, that's one example of how Rome kind of had a handle or a fist around uh, the influences of religion, but not only did the religions have to be approved of um, by the by the Roman government, but the Roman government also made uh, concessions for religion within their laws. So there were certain laws that they had in place that said you can do this or you cannot do that based on certain religious practices that they didn't want to interfere with because it all had to do with the with the Roman citizenry uh, family units and they were trying to keep a cohesiveness and a happiness so to speak amongst those people okay so here we go um I'm going to put on here as in Athens uh Corinth worship many gods Uh, I kind of want to make that. I'm going to switch that here. Roman law. Make concessions. For them. Okay. So there were certain things that they did, allowed, condoned, uh, uh, accepted, um, put a kind of a stamp of approval through the government, through the through their law system. They said, yes, you can do this, and no, you cannot do that. It, it's very similar even in America. You know, our laws are made, and they go through some kind of a judicial process, and it's, um, you know, there are some laws in there that you and I would not approve of, right? We know them <laughs> very well. But, but the government has made an, a stamp of approval on certain things. And so that's what Rome did. There were certain things that they put stamps of approval on based on religious requirements of the people. Okay, so that's the first part of kind of what, what was going on there. But then there's also historical research on um, marriage customs and laws that were influencing the, the, the Greco-Roman Corinthian church, basically, okay? So we're going to look on here, history. Historical research. So these are, both of these are things that Kate, yes. I think another uh, 
sports cities, they were really kind of, they were very prosperous. Oh, yes. Yes. And that's a little bit different subject, but you're absolutely right. Their, their wealth greatly, I mean, not only influenced how they lived, because they were lavishly supplied in many ways, but it also allowed them to indulge. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I, you know, I lived in Turkey for many years. I think I told you guys this a lot. <laughs> but uh, 3.5 million people in that one city. The Church of Laodicea. That is, it's ancient Laodicea, present-day Izmir. 3.5 million. <laughs> Can you imagine? All living in one area. Okay, so my my thing here is, even though Kay did not tell you to go back and look again at the at the cultural setting of of the city and on the histor and to look at research on their their marriage laws, because what is Chapter Seven all about? Marriage and singleness, right? It's all about those two subjects. And apparently, these uh, uh, these um, church members had many questions about legally and spiritually how and what did they do with these relationships that they had and they had a, a multitude of relationships they didn't understand quite how their mindset should be concerning how to handle these things as well so um historical research helps you do that so i i I wish that she had made a note somewhere in there, and she didn't, but we're going to handle it together a little bit. And if you want to go and do more researches on, on yourself, it's very easy just to put in a Google search on Roman laws in the days of Paul or Roman laws in Corinth, or in early church Corinth or something along those lines, and you'll get all this stuff. This one is a, a TyndaleHouse.com is who I used. Um, there were bunches of them out there, but pretty much they were all saying the same thing. You know, some of them brought up different little points, but uh, Tyndale House is a good one to go to if you're interested. Okay, so we're going to historical research on marriage. I'm going to put laws and customs. Okay, so I'm going to put a few things up here, but not all of my notes, okay? I'm just going to kind of walk you through. Do, before I start walking you through my notes, I want to know, did any of you find anything or know of anything from previous studies? Yes. Oh, there you go. Yes, they did. As a matter of fact, I just listened to a sermon on John MacArthur this morning while I was doing my makeup, and he addressed that section again. And, you know, there's that one section that she's making mention of, that word daughters is maybe in there, maybe not. So you, but the interesting thing is you can look at what's said there from two different points, and either way you still come out with the sound doctrine. But there was this, this, um, Thing that was going on in the early church if they had a virgin daughter that many of the fathers were saying you know maybe I should keep her from the the trials and the tribulations of marriage and of the heartache of losing a child or losing a, a husband um, uh, particularly what was what time frame are we talking about here as far as a dating on this 
What happened in 70 AD? The temple was destroyed, right? So, and just before that, in, this, in the 60s, what began to happen? I think his name was Domitian. Domitian does anybody know that guy's name? He was the, the um, proconsul or whatever of that area. But there was this, or might, he might have been the Caesar. But he was, there was this great oppression against the Christians in that time. Do you know, you remember that? You realize that? That's another point that actually should probably be in here somewhere, that there was persecution, strong persecution coming against the church. That was one point. Uh, let's just put that on here. Uh, strong Christian persecution. I'm just going to put on horizon. In other words, it was bubbling up. It's kind of, you know, like you see in any kind of a situation in history where you can see things start to get volatile. It's not quite a full-blown war yet, but it's, it is nasty. People are, are struggling and they're fighting against their neighbors basically for two mindsets on how things should be handled. We don't understand that either, do we? Right? <laughs> okay, so we see that coming up and you have to keep, that, keep in mind that since this was probably mid-60 AD, right? And so we're, we're just four to five, maybe six years at the most out of the 70 AD destruction of the temple and the full-blown persecution where the Christians had to run into hiding. Um, and they were dispersed all over and the temple was destroyed. And that was the end of the temple. There's not been one since. Okay. So, um, all right, so that's a really good point. Now, let me just go through and just tell you the few things. I'm going to do it kind of quickly because I want to crunch our time here as much as we can because we've got so much to cover when we get over here to instructions. Okay, the first thing is the legal age to marry for girls was 12 and for boys was 14. That's pretty hard to believe, isn't it? But that was the fact. Um, I myself was married at 16. I know that's also shocking, but it worked, and I've been married 45 years. So, <laughs> okay, so um, legal age to marry was 12 for girls, 14 for boys. Now, here's some of the nuances to that. Noble men and women tended to marry in these earlier years. In other words, they would be uh, betrothed and, and uh, uh, engaged basically by that time. Now, the consummation of those marriages and the fulfilling of those marriages, there was sometimes a time, there were other things involved as to why and when and where, but we won't get into all that. Just know that that was the typical age, 12 to 14. Um, other people outside of the nobility tended to be more like late teens. Okay, just general rule of thumb. Uh, purpose for marriage. This is interesting. Literally, by Roman perspective, it was to produce children, but specifically to produce Roman citizen children. So in other words, it was a citizen producing a citizen. Now that's kind of a concept we don't think about quite as much, but for Rome, there were very specific laws that were um, uh, reserved only for citizen rights. Now, you and I have seen this in scripture before where Paul comes up against it and he sometimes has even used that. I am a, Ro a Roman citizen, not one by 
you know, by purchasing, but I was born a Roman citizen. And this is quite profound and very significant. So that has to be kept in mind. That was their purpose for marriage was citizen to produce Roman citizens. Um, marriage in that time was used as a political tool also, right? Especially with the upper classes. It was used to make political nuances and, and movement to align people. Make We used to talk about this even, remember back in the days of the kings, they would do the same, marry off for, for power position for uniting of kingdoms and uh, joining of finances together in order to make a certain family uh, unit stronger, okay? It, so th not that that would ever happen today. Right. <laughs> no. The other thing was uh, marriage, just so you know this, it was strictly for Roman citizens only. Legal marriage was only for the Roman citizen. If you were not a Roman citizen, you were not legally married under Rome's law. So what, is that, what does that mean then <laughs> for people who were not Roman citizens? What do you think? If you're not a Roman citizen and you can't be legally married, what do you do? You live together. You cohabitate. You uh, do co what we would call maybe today common law marriage arrangements. Because here's the problem. Uh, for slaves, if, if they, if they um, chose a partner, they cohabitated together in a common law scenario, but because of their social standing, their owner could sell them off. Could sell one off here and one off there, and then what? And so can you imagine how this would be a dilemma, particularly for Christians? This could be a real problem. Because now you are under a covenant by God. Until death do you part. Now you've parted and you have no idea are they alive or dead. Right? And so this was an issue that would come up for them. How did they handle this? What? What were they supposed to do in these situations? Although Paul doesn't directly address that one, does he? Unfortunately, I kind of like to know that one, but he didn't cover that one. But that would have been one of the problems that would have come up for them. Uh, what about the subject of divorce? Well, for them, uh, under Roman law, divorces were like pr prolific. Everybody, it, like it, at the drop of a hat, people would divorce each other for all the reasons I just mentioned, for these political and financial reasons, right? Marriage was used also as a powerful tool and a weapon even against uh, oppressors or others who would like to usurp someone else's position or power in the city. Um, now, on top of that, we have the issue of what were called concubines. Now, we don't deal with concubines in America, but concubines were quite common in Rome and throughout the Asian countries, those Middle Eastern countries. Um, they were common and they were accepted as long as there were a couple of caveats. And I thought these were funny. The girl was at least 12 years of age. <laughs> And they were also tolerated as long as that relationship did not threaten the religious and legal integrity of the Roman citizen family. So if he had a wife, a legal Roman wife, who was legitimized through the Roman church, uh, uh, legal system, but he could also have a concubine on the side. As, and here's what he had to do. He, he simply had to report it. As long as it met the criteria, she was over the age of 12, and it wasn't going to 
mess with the other family. In other words, destroy that family, break that family up. That wife was not objectionable to it and it wasn't going to cause her to divorce and it would split that fine, the finances of that family because when she divorces and she leaves, she takes her dowry with her, okay? So in order to prevent this kind of volatile financial issues in their city, they made laws that says, you should, yes, you may have a concubine as long as that concubine does not interfere with your, your Roman citizenry family unit. Okay, and also if it does not violate your worship system that also is protected by their Roman law. Okay, that covers another issue. Boy, we've got a bunch. I'm going to put them up here for you just in a second so you can kind of remember some of them. Um, another issue is prostitutes. This goes back to the, multi the multitudes of religious systems that were going on there you know one of them was um athena they had one called juno they had one called jupiter all of these were things that were related to in particular sexual issues because for instance uh what some of the churches there were there were more than 1200 prostitutes for this one temple in corinth at that time when paul was there and because it fell underneath the protection of a religious, a, 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 a stamp of approval religious system by the Roman government, these prostitutes were allowed to be a part of the daily worship of these men and women of that city. And therefore, that was not a violation of the covenant of marriage or the legal standing of marriage. I know, we're like going, no way, man, <laughs> right? Forget that. But that is what they were facing there. And so what you have to understand is it was, it was legalized, it was standardized, it was acceptable, it was common practice, and it was prolific. It was everywhere. So these are the issues that were going on. Now are some of these things that he's talking about kind of in your mind, you're going, oh, yeah. That kind of makes sense now when you go back and you think about some of the questions and the way he answers certain things, how he clarifies certain things, kind of make better sense once you realize what he was up against in that city, what Paul had to try to deal with. Um, so we had uh, uh, oh, Aphrodite, that was the other one, the temple to Aphrodite, which is the one that had in service 1,000 uh, prostitute priestesses, they called them, right? Um. I want to now take you, that's just the, some of those most fundamentals. Let me write them down here so I can say this. So we have, we have um, marriage was a political tool. It was a financial arrangement. For, for Roman citizens. It was uh, for Roman citizens only. Um, we have concubines and prostitutes approved by Roman law. So it's so it was very common 
It was, it was just commonplace for everyone. So think about that as a young Christian church being birthed, being brought into a religion system of Judaism where there's purity, there's monogamy, there's one husband and one wife as Christ taught and as God taught, right? And so now they're coming into this and they're trying to figure out, well, now what do I do if I already have these relationships in place? I'm now coming into faith. I've been saved. But now I have a commitment to a woman who's a concubine or as a kept woman. She's a prostitute, but she's my kept woman. But now there are these established relationships where they are dependent upon me. I have children with them. By the way, the children are illegitimate of the concubine and the prostitute by Roman law. The only legitimate children are your children by your Roman citizen marriage if you're a Roman citizen. But if you're a slave, you don't have any of those rights anyway. You would only have your, um, your kept woman, which would be like a common law marriage, basically. It's kind of complicated, huh? Can you see where poor Paul and these people, can you imagine how many questions they actually did happen, have, you know, when they came into this new faith? It's a birthing of a church. It's not that old. It's right, you know, it's in those first few years of Christianity coming in, into its um, reality as a church. And the, they have all these issues where they have already established situations in their life. And now, what do they do? Okay? Kind of makes better sense, doesn't it, now that you think about what's going on there. Uh, let's see. Children are illegitimate. Okay. And the political tool for Roman citizens only and the legitimate children. Okay, so we have the legitimate children, and we have the illegitimate children. We have a multitude of things going on there. Okay, now I just want to bring um, another subject up. That is Rome and its slaves. This is another thing, and it, it, it's subtly mentioned in here in a couple of spots in that one paragraph in particular, and we're going to talk about it in a minute. But um, a slave was not a subject but an object of law. That's how they viewed them. Legally, they owned a slave, but they had, with that ownership came responsibilities and, uh, and privileges, but, but, but mostly it, had, it was simply looked at as a legal thing, right? Uh, a master had the right of ownership and could sell him or her and, uh, or give them in pawn in exchange for things, but could not harm or kill them without magistrate ruling. So they, you know, people think about how, in your mind, oh, they were probably just treated terribly. No, they weren't. They weren't allowed to treat their, because Rome looked at this as a, almost a financial setup of benefit, value, and, and con contribution. So the slaves were needed in order to have Rome function correctly. They needed those servants, you know. It's kind of like in America, plantation days, where w they were so dependent upon those, those slaves in that day and time and to get, come out from under that, as we know, took a war, right? Rome had their slaves, um, and their slaves were a part of the financial weaving of their, of their fabric of their uh, 
culture and of their financial system, which is the most important part to them, right? They want, they want people at rest and they want people financially prospering because this was good for Rome, okay? So that's the first thing. He's a subject, he's an object, he's owned, he can be bought, sold, or pawned off. So just know that. Secondly, there were several ways a person could become a slave. And I thought this was interesting because did you notice in our text where he said, if you're a slave this and if you can, you know, and stay that way, but then he says, but if you can get out of it, then do, right? I thought that was kind of, so here's where, here says, there are several ways a person could become a slave. Number one, captured in war. Number two, owning money that he could not pay back. In other words, he got himself into debt and became uh, a slave. Uh, being a convict, in other words, having been particularly murderers and bad, really bad people, right? Um, they could, rather than get a death penalty sentence, they could be put under, under uh, slavery and work for a master if a master so chose to do that instead. Um, and also, if a female, this one was interesting, if a female Roman citizen lived with another man's slave in spite of his objections, that Roman citizen female could become a slave. So in other words, she's, she's got a relationship going on with a slave and the master of that slave doesn't like it. And he's like, knock it off, stay away. And if she doesn't, if she continues, then he puts her in subjection with his slave. Okay, fine, you can have him, but you're now my slave. So it would be very costly for her for that love relationship. But that's another way that they could become a slave. Now, for us, the other part of that is then, well, then how, how could they uh, attain freedom from slavery since he mentions that in our text, right? A slave could get free by the act of uh, manumission, they call it, M-A-N-U-M-I-S-S-I-O-N. -S -S -I, I have no, I didn't get time to look that word up, but it's an act of manumission. These practices grew and changed over history according to the need and out of necessity for Roman business and financial interests. So there were, there was a long list, I have it in here, um, but there was a long list of like six or seven different kinds of things that at one time in history they did this and then for a while they did this and then under this rulership they did it this way. And th so there was a variety of things. So there were ways to become free. Um, those who did become free were called libertus. I've kind of heard that word before, L-I-B-E-R-T-U-S, libertus. It's like liberty, right? But, and so those who became libertus became Roman citizens. Very interesting. So if you were freed as a slave by Rome, or by a Roman citizen, you became a Roman citizen. Pretty cool, right? However, this is really important to keep in mind when we get into that passage because with that liberty, they had, they had, very, they had a lot less uh, freedoms. They still had a lot less authority than a, a born Roman citizen. And Paul addresses this at one point. Remember, they, they, ca they took him into captivity and they beat him and put him in prison and then he complained. He says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. And they all went, ah! yikes, we're so sorry, just go away, <laughs> right? They, did, they didn't want him to object to what had happened. They didn't want him to cause a stink of it, and he didn't. But he did say, no, I won't stop preaching, right? So, uh, so they had fewer rights if they had been a slave and freed, but they were now Roman citizens. However, um, 
his free standing was dependent on a good standing relation between the patron and him, the one who freed him and him. In other words, the patron could punish a disobedient libertus and could even ask a magistrate to turn the libertus into a slave once again. So he could lose it. Even though he had liberty, he was given liberty, if he upset or made angry his previous owner in any way, um, that owner could take him, go back to the magistrate and explain to the magistrate what was going on, and that magistrate could make him a slave again. Now, what do you think that might do in the relationship of the one who has become free? How do you, he's not exactly free, is he? Right. He doesn't work for him. Yeah, he doesn't work for him, and he's not under his mastery as he was before. However, as a free citizen living in town, whenever they would come again, up against one another, or if this man needed something and he knew this, this previous slave would be able to handle it or do this for him, what kind of power do you think he had over him? And with that kind of power over him, then what do you think that really made him? A slave, even if he wasn't a slave. Even though he was libertous, he was still really a slave in many ways, right? To that one man, because that one man contained the power and, and ability to be able to put him back underneath slavery. So, basically, that kind of a situation where a slave does become free, it comes with, with, with both ties and obligations. So, you're, not, you're free, but you're not exactly free. So, it may have felt good for the slave to get that freedom, and now he has kind of his own life. He can make his own ruling. He's not working for someone else uh, in the same way. But anytime that guy showed up at his door, he kind of had to bow and say, yes, sir. Just kind of one of those points. Okay. Wow. Good stuff. Good insights. Does that already start to say, okay, that's interesting. If I keep that in mind when I'm looking at each of these subjects, is that going to help me? Good tool in your toolbox, yes? Don't forget you have it. You, just because Kay does not tell you, go and do your historical research, when you hit a book like this and a, and a paragraph or a chapter like this where there are some real specific things, it has to do with l the legal laws about marriage, and you're talking about him speaking into a, a church in Corinth under Roman laws, because are you and I under the laws of our land today? Do we as, a, as Christians still have to learn to maneuver and operate, be obedient to the laws of the land, and yet also still be honorable and uh, pure in our relationship with God. Is that, is that true for us today? So have you any thoughts about that at this point? <laughs> Supposedly, yes. Yes, we are. Yes, but we have laws on the book. So what happens when the laws on the book conflict with the laws of our religion? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. On the other hand, does that conflict uh, give us liberty to break the law? So how do we work around that? How are we going to work around that as Christians? 
want me to give it? That's why I was asking you for. (laughs) I'm wanting to know when, for you today as a Christian, living under the law of our land, think of it as Rome, even though it isn't, but our laws, are there laws that we have that conflict or, or, or rub against in any way our religious rules and regulations and laws and holiness living? Yes? Okay. Very, okay. So that was my question is how do we as Christians honor God but also obey the laws of the land? Because did God tell us we must obey the laws of the land? Yes. Okay, so this is, a, again, another secondary thing that you could go into and spend a lot of time studying and researching this, and it's a whole different study we did not do. But I'm bringing it up to say to you that these problems that we're looking at here in Corinth, he focused on one quality of it, which is what do we do about marriage and singleness? Because we got a lot of tangled up messes. We came into our Christian faith already messed up. How many of you came into your Christian faith with a really messed up life? Or how many of you know people who come in to a Christian, into their Christian faith and are really messed up? How many of us came into Christian faith unsaved but got saved along the way? And then what do you do with your relationship issues? Right? These are the questions that these these Corinthian church members had. They were like, okay, so how do I honor God? How do I honor my nation, my government? How do I live under the holiness of God and yet not violate God? What did Paul say in one of the verses about what was most important, what mattered the most is what? Do you remember? Yes. He says in... um, in verse 19, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. So as Christians, we have all these legal things that they are looking at technically is how they're doing it. This is not just in general, can I fall in love and get married? Don't, you know, It was, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? How do we handle it? And so he's saying, above all, You are to keep the commandments of God. That's what really matters the most. So at the bottom line of all of it, whatever your decision is, make sure it lines up with God's word, right? Did you notice chapter 6, as we closed out chapter 6, one of the things that he actually said to us was, you have been bought with a price, therefore what? Glorify God in your body. I thought it was rather interesting after we got into chapter 7 that in many ways that could almost be a title for chapter (laughs) 7. Glorify God in your body. Because as he addresses these marriage issues, what seems to be the the overriding issue about um, people who, whether they marry or don't marry? What was the catalyst upon which Paul says, this is what's going to make you, help you make a decision about this? Okay, okay, yes, he covers that Christian service, that's true, and initially he says, though, if you can't have self-control, marry, but because of immoralities, have your own wife and have your own husband. So, two things, you're right, I wanna, I'm glad you brought that up, um, Glenn. Number one, 
It had to do with moralities. Can you keep God's law in a, in a moral way? And number two, can you keep God, the priority of God first and keep his laws? So that's kind of the, the bigger thing that's going on in all of this, right? That as we go through and we look at each of these chapters and what are each of these paragraphs within the chapter, each one of those points is how do you do that? How do you keep God's law morally and how do you obey God? And how do you not commit acts of uh, fornication? How do you not um, lose sight of your focus, which is the Lord? And how do you do all that together one time? Okay, so that was, that is our historical background. Now, the next thing we want to look at, and I felt like for me it was important to cover this with you before we go into the details, and that is Paul's mindset. Because it seems, again, as I said, he kind of seemed a little bit schizophrenic he, or wishy-washy, however you want to say it. He, he would say, well, you can do this or you can do this, right? And yet he also almost sounded a little bit arrogant, and he kept saying, well, I, I wish you could do it my way, you know? But if we take a moment and make a list on what we see Paul's focus was, I think it helps us. Did anybody do that in your private time? Did you make a list on Paul and what what was going on in his thinking? Did anybody do that? Okay. Good. Excellent. That's that's the mindset we're talking about. So if you can find that list, you'll be able to help me out a bunch. I'm counting on you. <laughs> but I'm going to guide you guys along. Here's, here's Paul's mindset. One of the first things I noticed was a, uh, something that he says in, in verse 25. So flip to 25. Uh, no, it wasn't 25. Uh, it's 26. <laughs> I guess I better fix that one. Okay, look to 26. What is he, what is the, the, it seems like is an overriding thing that's going on that Paul keeps kind of making a reference about. Present distresses. Did anybody kind of try to do some research on that in your, your commentary work? When you were allowed to go in and look at commentary? You did. Good, Martha. Tell me what you found. Uh-huh. Okay, so I'm going to put on here um, present persecutions. growing. That's one possibility. So I'm just going to put that as one. Okay, cause it, and that one is absolutely correct. He could be making a reference to the, in, the, grow, the growing or strengthening of this movement of, of animosity and hatred and the government coming against uh, the Corinthians uh, the, or the Christians in particular, but 
just it seemed like the Rome itself was really went through a lot of volatile years before it finally kind of dissipated in around 300, right? 320 or something like that. Okay, so that's one possibility that he's making reference to. And certainly, I think it had to have had some kind of effect as, as well on the people. Any other thoughts? Oh, good. Very good. Okay, that you know sometimes those things, even though the the movies aren't always totally accurate, they really do help you get perspective, don't they? They kind of put you in. This is why I liked doing the historical background because I think it kind of gets you into the mood and the thought of, oh yeah, they were really people. They were living everyday lives, and these were the issues they were dealing with, right? Okay, so that's excellent. So you're basically kind of supporting. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard, actually, our Sunday school class, our ABF, sent a text out and said, hey, you got to go see this. I, I know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, awesome. Okay. Lisa. I don't know that that, do you really think that's what he was talking about, though, here, where he's talking about the current distresses? I think the current distresses is that they don't know which way to go. And some of it, I think okay. Okay, I'll... Okay. Okay. All right. That isn't one I considered, but okay. That's that's a good thought. I mean, it certainly can at least influence to some degree, right? Did anybody learn about what was going on geographically in the world at that time? For the for the the city of Corinth and so forth. Okay. One of the ones, and I don't have it. I don't have the notes with me. But I remember one of the things that they mentioned was that during those days, it is recorded, and not just recorded once, but numerous times, and they mentioned the people who did the recordings. But there was a, a particular man who was hired for the city of Corinth who would oversee uh, things in times of famines. And so apparently there were some famines going on in the surrounding areas. I don't know if it's because there wasn't enough rain or maybe they had had... Um, other kinds of things. I don't know what the geographical problem was, but something had happened that were causing them to be, have some food shortages as well. Say it again. That's, you know, I didn't think of that, Robert. I'm going to put that down. <laughs> okay, but they did say there was, there was, um, how, how would you put this? Um, Basically, there were food shortages, and there were, um, even though Corinth was r really rich, and they certainly had ways to be able to get it if they wanted, because they had the money, right? But the, apparently, they were having that, and I know earthquakes was another issue in those days. So between earthquakes and famines, or, uh, you know, that were going on, 
short famines, obviously, nothing catastrophic, but enough to cause distresses. So they had also mentioned that, that there might have been things going on um, food, with food shortages. Because it, it, two or three, I guess, of these logs logged this man's name, and he was their man for looking over the shortages issues. And so he was documented, these are, these are historical records, and he was the guy for the city of Corinth. And so he's mentioned more than once, he's through the, the time. So apparently it would happen, and then it would be okay for a little while, and then it would happen again. So it, it could also have, I think, a lot to do with rain and how much food is being grown. It's like crops, kind of, or like what we've just had with another flood, wiped out all the food, and now we're going to be short for a period of time, right? Some of the grocery uh, store uh, prices are going to reflect this, right? All right, so, so it would just be struggling for food. Okay, so those are two or three possible things that he, he does not explain. So all we can do is look historically to, at the city of that time, look at some records and try to draw, what was he speaking about the, these concerning these distresses? But whatever they were, what was it affecting their, um, their mindset concerning? Regardless of what the distress was, we don't know for sure. What was it affecting? What does Paul say about it? He says in verse 27, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, what? That it's, a, it's good for a man to remain as he is. And how was he? Well, yeah, in this case, in verse 25, he's speaking about uh, virgins, but these are the ones who are engaged. And then he says, but are you bound to a wife? Now, this is interesting. Speaking about virgins, but he's talking about being bound to a wife. Now, that one's kind of confusing, right? So we'll talk about that one in a minute. Right now, I just want to stay focused on Paul's mindset, what had to do with, some, with these distresses. In view of the present distress, right? He said he wants them to understand certain things, correct? What else? Um, what is his motive in 28? Yes, I'm trying, I am trying to spare you trouble. That was 28, right? Okay, now, um, following that, then he moves into this next segment where he's talking kind of about a time frame, about something going on here, right? What was going on in 29 and also in 31? What, me what reference does he have in mind in his thinking as he's addressing these questions? It sounds like he's talking about the second coming. He says, uh, but I say this, brethren, the time has been shortened. What caused the time to be shortened? If you're making, a, as Pat has, a conclusion that he's speaking about the second coming, what has caused this to be initiated? What's, what initiated this new time frame and his new thinking? There you go. That's it. Jesus came. He was, uh, it was buried. He was resurrected. And now we are now in the church age. And now he knows 
Jesus taught what, what had now approached upon them, the time of the end, the last days. Right. Okay, so here we're going to say it's the time. Oh boy, yeah, for sure. These, 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 per, the per, the persecutions that were going on absolutely was to me would have been the first thing I think of when he says these present distresses. It seems like, um, you know, if this was written around sixty four or sixty five, and some people say earlier sixty two or sixty three, still you're o you're under ten years to the to the seventy A.D. big blow up, and up leading up to that, there's lots of persecution that is going on. The other thing is, would you consider the present distresses m may also have to do with the fact a, a, a newly birthed people group called Christians are now trying to live under Roman law. Those are distresses as well. Potentially, maybe he's even alluding to that as well. Right. There you go. That it is, in fact, that's the next thing he says um, in 31. He says, what, what's going on right now concerning the time? You should have put a little clock on that so that you can indicate that as a time reference. What is the next thing he says? Is, is this beginning to kind of show you his mindset as he answers some of these questions? Is this, when you start to make a list like this, does it kind of help you factor in what you're looking at when you're thinking about as he's answering questions? He's thinking about the fact that there's these present distresses that are going on. I'm trying to spare you troubles, and we're going to talk about exactly what he means by all that. And also the fact that that we're at the end times, that we're in these last days. And so the time is short. Short for what? Short to do what? To do God's work, to, to evangelize and to spread the gospel, right? And then the form of this world is passing away. That kind of alludes to the fact, too, that therefore what concerning these relationships, how does that relate? How does it relate to the fact that this is passing away? Okay, it should not become your, your all-consuming thoughts, and you have to keep the decisions that you make about your personal life in balance with the understanding this is a temporal life. You don't live for the here and now. This is temporary. What you're going into is eternal. And so what has the higher priority or should have the higher priority? Yeah, eternal. I mean, it's really a no-brainer, right? Okay, yes, Glenn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, hold on. Let me let me do it that way. Hold on. Okay, so I that is a, another good one. So what is his 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 mindset in this? He says, "I want, I want to secure your now." Does that kind of answer some of the things where he says, well, I'd rather you choose this, but you can do that, and it's fine. It's, it's not a sin to do either one. This one's the better, but that one's good too. Does it make better sense when what he's actually saying is his goal is the time is short. This earth is passing away, and what I want from you is undivided devotion to the Lord. Un, undistracted devotion. To the Lord. Okay, and that's in uh, 33 and 34. He also said, again, in 723, because I don't know if you marked the word concern or not, but that one caught my eye. In, in 32, he, what does he say? Uh-huh. So does that explain to you why Paul often says, I'd rather that you be as I am? Okay, so although all of this is true, this is what he really wants for them to understand. This is to be their mindset. This is Paul's mindset. This is where Paul is coming from on everything he looks at. When they are posing these questions about marriage and singleness, they are still seemingly a little bit tangled in the world are we not are we not still always especially if you're talking to uh, you know the young people who are still approaching those years of marriage and not quite yet there yet but often that becomes the an all-consuming thought particularly for women but also for many men they want to know where's my who's going to be my wife what is my life going to be like who will that help me be in my relationship and where are we going to take our life together um people got you know god says in other passages it's not good for man to be alone so on the one hand he puts it in the heart of men to want to have a wife and that it's a good thing to have a wife but on the other hand here paul is saying it's better if you don't so this is the dilemma but the backdrop to that is this is what my, paul's mind was this is what he was thinking so here's Paul, and this is what he was thinking, right? So if you, if you think about the, this particular point, this is going to help you a lot then when he does this flip-flop thing going on through here. Uh, you can do it this way or you can do it this way. They're both good. You pick, right? Okay, so now he says a big but in verses 1 and 2. He gives a but statement, but... Although he wants this for them, but there's a problem in the flesh of man. And what is that problem? Immoralities. And so he says, but because of immoralities, uh, marriage is good, basically. That's my translation. <laughs> okay, I'm saying marriage is good. Seven two, he says that. How does he? How does he actually say it? 
Uh, but because of immorality, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Okay, so he's in the conclusion of it. He goes through this whole book. His mindset is marriage is not bad. And so you do not want to walk away from this thinking that what Paul is promoting is celibacy for every Christian. That would be a wrong understanding of what he's doing here. And I, I, have, I can't stress that strongly enough because celibacy is not the, um, the pinnacle point. It's not something to aspire to. As a matter of fact, Paul makes it clear that it's a gift, right? What did he, what did he say about that? It seemed, um, verse 7, read that for us, Susan. Okay. However, however, each man has his own gift. Okay, and that's in uh, seven seven. Okay, so knowing that he that that he's not celebrating celibacy per se, but in this case, because of the present distress, because of his perspective that the, er, the world is soon to pass away, and, and therefore the time is short, right? There's a short amount of time to, to accomplish the things that he wants. And because he understands that with marriage comes distraction, comes concern for other things other than just the work of God. Therefore, I would rather that you not. I wish that you were like me. That, that now we now see where Paul is. What does that tell us about Paul? Is he married at this point? No. Now, the question might be, was he ever married? What do we think? Anybody know? Probably. As a matter of fact, one of the... Uh, um, MacArthur, John MacArthur said um, on the sermon I listened to was that to be a member of the Sanhedrin, which he was, you had to be married, was one of the requirements. So he probably was, actually we can almost say without a doubt, he was married at one time. Now, what has happened to his wife is the question after that. Who does he group himself with? Widows and those not married, meaning divorced, right? Is what he's speaking. So either he's divorced or he's widowed. Okay, think about Paul on the road to Damascus. He receives his vision from God, and he becomes a believer. We know he was already a Pharisee, right? He was already a part of the Sanhedrin. So that means he was already married. So now he gets saved, and now what? What might that do within the marriage relationship? She, yeah, she, right. Unless she also came into faith, do you think it could cause a problem? <laughs> and knowing now about the laws of marriage and divorce in that day, what could she do if this happened to her? She could just leave. It was common practice to divorce and walk away. So she could do that. Although, technically, if she was a good, devout Jew... She would not have done that. But knowing that, under, that they're under 
also Rome at that time and and the things that were going on in Rome we also because it was the Roman Empire it was over Israel whether you know whether they liked it or not the Romans had their influence in in uh, Israel as well so she could have adhered to the Roman law and just walked away taken her dowry and left potentially so we have a couple of possibilities we don't know which it is Paul never ta- speaks of it he doesn't explain it but what we do know is at this point he classifies himself uh, as the unmarried or the widow one of those two right so at that point maybe his wife was still with him p- potentially or maybe he was saying, if I wanted to get a wife, could I not take her with me if I wanted to? I mean, we don't know that either. So these are, some of these things are unimportant things. You know, they don't really matter to the storyline per se. They are interesting to think about. But um, I think that, that just kind of getting a feel, though, for what's going on, poli- you know, geographical, political, law system, understanding his mindset, where he was in life at this point was single. So because he was, he was not married, now he had the freedom. And so he also had the, the ability to look at it from both sides. He'd been married and now he's not. So he's lived in both worlds, right? So maybe he's thinking, I, I have a little experience here. And I think I can tell you it's better not. Although I would disagree with that however that's you know but see again that's why he says however each man has his gift from God so it's not for every man or for every woman to be alone and that is not the priority so we get that clear then we know we're good all right now let's see if we can move on general instructions basically this is what he has said I I could we could do more but he goes in in 38 he says the one who gets married does well and he who does not get married does better (laughs) he who does well he who gets married does well and he who does not marry does better that is his mindset so there's a, co- a contrast there. That's in 738, verse 38. And then he, he makes an opinion statement in 40. My opinion is a widow is happier if she remains as she is, widowed. However, but, and according to verse 9, but if you do not have self-control, what? It's better to marry. Because ultimately what is the, 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 the goal is? To keep God's commandments what verse is that one thank you that's the goal goal is to keep God's commandments so has that at this point clarified kind of for you some of what Paul is doing in this letter already do you feel like you've got a little better grip on it 
just by looking at historical background and looking at Paul's mindset? I hope the answer is yes. Now, I'm not going to go through this part. It's on my chart, but I'm going to tell you about it real briefly. Paul gives instructions in this book as well, and this can be, kind of can be confusing to some people. Did anybody have a challenge with this where he says, well, the Lord says, but I don't, and then I say this, and this is my how I think about it, and this is my mindset? Okay, just so you, you understand this, what you have to know is when Paul says these are the instructions of the Lord like he does in 710, he, these are things basically he can directly quote from Jesus' teachings. So that he's making it clear these are direct quotes from Jesus. And that kind of gives an almost absolute solid rock, you know, we're not even going to discuss it. This is what Jesus says, right? About marriage and divorce and so forth. Then the other ones are about, he makes references to his inspired teaching. And I just want you to know this is inspired teaching. Again, all were all the scriptures is by, is inspired by God. In Second uh, Peter, it says the holy men of old wrote as they were carried along by what? How are they carried along to do their writing? By the Holy Spirit. So keep that that in mind. He says, "I say not the Lord." And Paul then speaks very basically what he says in First Corinthians two thirteen: spiritual words from spiritual thoughts. Right. Do you remember where we said we get the mind of Christ? And, it's, and he says, okay, so these are things that Jesus did not specifically address, but are nonetheless from the Spirit of God. So he's making that clear. Paul has, he says in 740, and you might want to circle it or highlight it for yourself, that he has the Spirit of God. And I, I'm kind of laughing because he's saying, I think I have the Spirit of God. No, he's saying, and I think I have the Spirit of God. I'm, I'm making an effect. Because, you know, think about the, the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He has the Spirit of God, right? It, it, was, a, it was a no issue, no, no contest kind of a statement. I have the Spirit of God in 740. And so you can go back to chapter 2, verse 16 again and say, therefore, he has the mind of Christ. So as he is speaking... Although he says, I say this, not the Lord, and this is what I think, right? Or this is my opinion. It's not just a flippant opinion. It is under divine inspiration of God, and he has the mind of Christ. And not only that, but there was another one that came to my mind, and that is Paul says to them earlier, I am your spiritual father because I gave you the gospel, and therefore follow me. So he's, he's establishing in that statement as well his spiritual authority to teach them right? To give them instruction from the word of God and about the word of God. There are things that Jesus addressed that were very clear statements and he could quote directly from, but there are other things that Jesus didn't happen to mention. He didn't happen to think about all of this at the time. You know, he was addressing one specific point and that's what Jesus dealt with. Now Paul is dealing with all of this. So he has a different perspective. It's the same moral principle, the 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 foundation of doctrine is where he's coming from. This is the foundational, which is why he says what's important is keeping God's commandments. So he's going back to say, everything I say, everything I speak, I'm giving to you because I have the spirit of God and because God has given you to me as my spiritual children and because I have the mind of Christ, therefore I speak spiritual words with spiritual thoughts. Those are all things that he's already laid down in 1 Corinthians for us. So keep all that in mind. Another one that I thought was interesting, uh, he follows um, 
Paul allows for personal choices in this as well. Did you notice that? He's not dictating to these people what their choices will be. He's saying you can do this or you can do this and it's your choice, which I love. Don't you love that? That gives you freedom to feel like you're not under pressure. You don't have to remarry if you're a widow. You don't have to remarry if you're divorced and you've been divorced in a way that sets you free, but you can if you want to. And all he's saying is, but it's, as far as I'm concerned, I think that because of these uh, present distresses and because of the time is short, then I think it's better if you don't. So that's what he wanted them to do, but he says, but you can marry if you want to, okay? So those are the two perspectives that are going on with him in that. Um, another thing is... Um, there is a passage in Matthew 16, 19, if you want to look it up, where Peter is given authority to bind and loose, right? And it's, do you remember when Peter stood on, uh, before Jesus and Jesus says, who, does, who do men say that I am? And he says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Barjona something, I can't remember how, they, how he pronounces it, but Peter. He says, blessed are you, Peter, because... Um, Man has not told you this, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, how did Peter get that message that Jesus is the Christ? How did he get that, in, that understanding or that knowledge? That's it. It was the spirit of it. It was a divine inspired thought. It was God giving it to our, even our, our, our salvation is a gift from God. He puts that in our heart and in our mind. He gives that to us. So Paul had experiences with Jesus. He was observing the things that he was doing. He was putting one and one together. And then under divine inspiration, he's, he proclaimed, you are the Christ. So Paul, in the same manner, is going to do this. Now, what's really interesting is there's some examples. So you can go look at this. Acts 10, 24 to 48, and then again in 11, 1 to 18. So just look at chapter 10 and chapter 11. You are going to see where Peter, after Jesus says, because you have said this, because you have been given divine inspiration, I can see, Peter, that you're listening to the Spirit of God. Therefore, I'm giving you authority based on the fact that you're listening to God I'm going to give you authority to loose and bind. And that's a wonderful teaching about loosing and binding. If you ever get a chance, or if I ever get a chance, we'll go through it together. But it's, real, it's basically, it's to permit or to um, forbid. It's to say, yes, this is true. No, that's not true. And so in these two accounts I just gave you in Acts 10 and 11, you're going to see Peter demonstrating the exercise of binding and loosing. And that is, in fact, what Paul is doing. Paul is binding and loosing here. I am allowing this, and I am, or I am forbidding that, that, this and that way. And that is what, quite honestly, we all have that authority. Anyone who has received the Spirit of God is given the authority to bind and loose. And what gives us the power behind that is what Paul says, back to keeping God's commandments. The foundation of your power to do that is twofold. It is your knowledge of the Word of God and it is absolutely your, your um, uh, possessing of the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit where God has a direct line to your heart and mind, number one, that's it. Number two, you have to know the Word of God. You have to know those commandments. So under those two things is the authority that Paul speaks. So when you see these passages where he says, I think, or it's my consideration, or it's my opinion, it's not just an opinion. It's divine inspiration, and it's actually biblical doctrinal fact. 
but what he ends up doing in every one of those counts is giving you a choice. And both of them fall underneath the, the, um, the understanding that you're going to keep God's commandments. You're not going to violate doctrinal truths or doctrinal principles. Okay? Now we have 20 minutes to get through the whole book. That's going to be a tough order. So we're not going to get to do a lot of detail on this. But I really, really felt that if you got this much done in class today, now you can go into your paragraphs all on your own and you'll handle it fine. Because it's plain English. It's, it's not that complicated. So what I want to do right now is just kind of do that. Go through and outline these uh, paragraphs. Uh, the way that I did mine is one through five. And in one to five, who is he speaking to? Oh, I wanted to tell you what I did, a tool I did. This was my other teaching trick for you guys this morning. Okay. As you know, some of these statements that he makes in here are confusing. There were a lot of word studies. I did tons of word studies. I don't know how many of you guys did, but I did, I don't know, bunch, bunches, two pages worth anyway. All right, because I kept hitting things and thinking, well, what does he really mean by that, right? Okay, so the other, there's another little system, and you guys know about this, and that is you can compare translations with translations, right? Make translation comparisons. Sometimes something written in the NI, uh, New American Standard Bible is slightly different when it's stated in, in other translations, and those other translations will give you a little bit better understanding. It, maybe it's phrased just slightly different or they use a different word, right? Um, we know that the New American Standard Bible is one of the best word-for-word -word translations that's out there for us today. It's, it's ranked up there right underneath one other one. Do you know what the other one is? Thou's and these <laughs> are King James Version. So because King James is the other one that's considered strongly uh, uh, approved of, basically, in um, academia for, for Bible study and for translation, I, use, I went in and looked at King James on a lot of this because I just felt like it would help me. So what I did is I made myself an observation worksheet I put my New American Standard Bible in one column. I put my King James Bible in the other. Chapter 7, and then I lined up things that were the same and highlighted them the same. Just like I did way back when we did our, our we were doing um, Revelation, remember? And we did Matthew, compared synoptically Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? And synoptically, you laid those three out side by side for the Matthew 24, and you could line things up and they were a perfect match was a wonderful way of observing that well I did that for this one for the purpose of simply translation okay because I wanted to hear the different wording something wow did it open my eyes wow did it make such a difference it really it made my I spent the first two days just struggling and I kept looking up words and then I'd and then I'd get lost in it and I have to pull out my word sheets again and relook at my definitions and it was it was a complicated way to do it. This simplified it for me. I'm just letting you know about this little tool and how well it worked for me in this scenario. And it was truly a divine inspiration from God for me to do this. It was only because I had looked up in the King James a couple of different times. How does it say it in King James? And it was so 
so easy to understand when I saw it in the King James that I went, wow, I wonder if there's other things I'm missing. So I decided to do this and it made my life so much easier. So I was able to then break it down. Verses one to five, major subject is about who? What, who, what people group? Or what is the subject in there? Right, so it's about marriage, right? Husbands and wives. So you could say on there just about marriage, right? So this one was about marriage, one to five. So concerning marriage, what does he, what do you determine in there? What were the points that you came up with? We're going to do this for a couple of these and then we're going to move along. But what did you see? Okay, the point to marriage is the reason you would, one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, just so don't get this wrong, but one of the reasons you would marry would be because of this issue of immoralities. Meaning, according to um, the King James, I want to read this to you because the translation is so different. You follow along with me. I'm going to read for you verses 1 and 2 in the King James, and you can compare it to what you're looking at in your New American Standard. I'm going to show you something here. He says in the King James, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. Wasn't that much easier to understand in the King James? Shocked me because I've always thought, oh, I can't read the King James because it's so, I mean, the language of it is tough, right? Although I got to say I grew up on it as a kid, but I've been out of it for a long time. So, but then the next verse is more complicated in the King James. Let me read it and you follow along on your sheet in verse three. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband. Now that is Greek right? But in, your, in, in, in the New American Standard, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. We know what duty that is because the subject of immoralities has just come up. King James has clarified it's speaking about fornication, which means sex out of marriage. Any kind of relationships outside of marriage is considered fornication. So now we can see how looking or comparing uh, the New American Standard and the King James and just having them laid out side by side, sometimes reading over here helped me, sometimes reading over on the other side helped me. But doing them side by side, wow, did that make a big difference for me. It's only one chapter. It took me a cut and paste and line it up, and I started kind of highlighting and marking things, but it was a good tool. So I would encourage you to give it a try. Go home and give it a shot just to, just because I think, here's what I think. If you don't do it once for yourself, you won't remember it. I can tell you that I did this, but you won't remember it. But if you go home and do it for yourself, you know, if you're a person who doesn't do computer, you can handwrite it. That takes a lot longer, but it's still going to accomplish the same thing. You're going to have the language of them on each side. The nice thing about doing it on a computer, though, is I was able to kind of manipulate where my, my breaks were and make the adjustments as I needed to for, for each of the verses, okay? So that was my tool. Now we can go back to this, okay? Because I, I almost forgot to tell you guys that that was such a, a great revelation to me when the Lord showed me that little. I've used that tool before, but it's been truly, it's dusty. It's been in my toolbox a long time, and I haven't pulled it out for any use 
lately. It's not something that necessarily precept or the inductive book itself really brings up and, and explains as, as a tool. Although there is a place, there's a chapter in the how-to study book that says comparing translations with translations is a helpful tool. But they don't ever actually ask you to exercise it. So it's kind of one of those tools that's there for you, but you have to think about using it. And if you, you know, like me, it, sometimes it's a last second thing. God gave it to me at the last minute yesterday, and I went, oh my gosh, this made it so much easier. So I'm just sharing that with you. Okay, so about marriage, it has to do with because of immoralities I'm just going to say, get married. <laughs> I'm really shortening this because we don't have room on here to do anything else, right? Uh, to avoid fornication, you're to have your own wife or your own husband. You are to fulfill your duty to one another. And there was a reason in that too. Why? Fulfill your duty, why? <coughs> yeah, exactly. So that Satan will not tempt, it, tempt you. Okay, so that's an easy one about marriage. One now we're going to look at uh, six to nine. Now you can see that my breaks are different than yours, right? One of the things that I was really thankful for when I did do some of my um, um, com my commentary work was there was one person in particular who brought this out. He says in verse six, "But this I say by way of concession. What this?" Well, you have to, again, now this is using your, your literary grammar skills, right? When he says this, is he speaking to verses 1 to 5, or is he speaking about what follows? Well, you have to keep reading the sentence in its full flow. Don't let the, um, the verse numbers stop your flow of thought, because at the beginning of 7, what is that word? Yet, so what does that do with verse 6 and 7? Is it one sentence or is it two? I mean, how does yet af affect what was said before it? Does it pull it down or shove it back up? Are you going to pull it down and keep with your flow of thought? He says, yet, okay, so just follow me. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet, I wish that all men were even as I am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So when he says, but I say this by way of concession... Who is he identifying? Because he's, he's saying in there, well, I wish that you were as I myself am, right? Is he married? So is he talking about verses 1 to 5? No, he's not. So he, starting in verse 6 has to go with 6 to 9. It cannot go with verses 1 to 5. So by this, I say by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men were married were as I am, okay? So now what we know, he's speaking about here in verses 6 to 9 about what people group, what little group have we got here? 
Unmarried and widows. That's right. I was going to ask you that. What, what does that mean, unmarried? It would mean divorce. Because he's going to cover the virgins and those betrothed in other passages as we move forward. And you, all, you really come to that conclusion when you see this. But he's speaking about the unmarried. The other thing is, is he identifies himself with this group. And we know that he was married before. And he either is a widow or he is divorced, one or the other. We don't know which, right? But he certainly doesn't fall in the category of being an unmarried as in a virgin unmarried, right? He's an older man and he's had a wife because of his standing in the Sanhedrin. Okay, so, and so in that case, he gives them that option, right? What's the option? It's good for them to remain even as I am, but... If you don't have control over your passions, you want to make sure you keep God's commandments, so get married. And I love the fact that he's, all, he's, he's told us, he says in verse 7, each man has his own gift from God. So he's not putting it upon you to feel that you have to get married. He's not putting it upon you that you don't get married. He's saying you make your own choice. There's no sin in either decision. I think this is the better, and this is why, but you need to make your choice because you sure don't want to fall into sin, right? If you have no control, you need to get married. That's just one reason, but he, he, that's the one he emphasizes here. Why do you think he keeps emphasizing the sexual sin issues? Yeah. Right? So in, in many ways, you can actually go back to 5 and 6 and pull it again into... Very good, Martha. That's exactly right. And so we know that Corinth is a very licentious city. There's all kinds of sexual uh, uh, perversities that are going on, including prostitutions, which are acceptable. And you can even live with your prostitute and have children with her. And that's just fine by the Roman government. They don't care what you do in your bedroom, as long as it doesn't mess with the government and how it functions. So as long as it doesn't mess with their Roman citizen family group, then they're okay with you doing whatever you want. So this is what he's up against. And he's saying, but you can't be that way. You have to understand that if you can't control your passions, you don't get to take care of your passions in an ungodly manner. It's not acceptable for you to keep a woman or have a concubine or have a prostitute. You must have your own wife and, and uh, wife you must have, or, and women, you must have your own husband. Pretty cool. All right. All right, so now that's uh, 6, 9, now 10 and 11 is uh, speaking about what group? Yeah, so it's about the subject of, all right, subject is divorce. So concerning divorce, what does he give them for instructions about that? And who, whose instructions is it in this case? The Lord commands. So I like the fact that he makes mention that in this case, this is actually directly out of the teachings of Jesus himself, and he makes a quote concerning that, and, he see, and basically he says what? What is, the, what is the standard about divorce in this? There you go. You have two choices. If your husband and you divorce, if he, and he's, unless there's other, by the way, you have to 
group this with a lot of other information. So this is an isolated point. There's other places where it says, but you're like Jesus is teaching that you're free if you're if your husband commits adultery, right? Or if your wife commits adultery. Um, so if they were to divorce, if they divorce you, you're left sitting alone. They go off and they remarry. Then what? Are you free to remarry? Yes. Because they've committed an, uh, this uh, uh, adultery, but here he's addressing just simply the fact that if they, if you, cho- if you, the Christian, choose to leave your husband, right now you have a choice. Two things you can do: either stay unmarried or reconcile back to your husband, because you're the one that left, not him. That's that particular rule of thumb. Interesting, huh? And that's a question, do you think that's a question you have asked in your life? Yeah, we do. And I get these, I mean, this has been real helpful for me, I think. Um, I, do, I do better when I go through the, through the facts. Okay, 12 to 16. Here's another challenging thing. Think about a lot of these believers who were living in, in these kinds of situations, this historical setting, they're they're either already married or they were married uh, to someone who had these the attitude of the culture of that day and the, and the Roman law of that day, and now they get saved. Now what? So what was the subject matter? About who? Okay. okay so it's instructions about unbelieving spouses right that's what he covers in that one so what does he tell them to do if they are willing to live with you what stay stay in the relationship just because you got saved and he's not doesn't is not grounds for you to leave your husband or your wife you still stay if they will have you now um he, he goes in and talks about sanctifying of the, the relationship, meaning you have an influence in that relationship because you belong to the Lord now. God is going to bless that relationship through you as the believer. Not that they get sanctified as in saved, but they are sanctified through you. Okay. Uh, also, the fact that your children are, in fact, holy because that was an issue. Remember, uh, illegitimate children and th- were through con- concubines and prostitutes. Well, th- quite honestly, they would be, uh, because they're common law marriage, most of them in that day, because they w- if they were slaves, because they didn't have rights for legal marriage. Therefore, are their children holy or not holy? Right? So he's saying, yes, they're holy. If you're a believer and your husband's willing to stay, and you guys continue in a relationship, and you have children, they are sanctified because you are the believer. Okay? If they leave you, then what? If that unbeliever, you get saved, and that unbeliever walks away from you, then what? You are free to remarry. Yes. That's it. You are free to, isn't that, it's like, wow, okay, now I have choices. Right? Rather than just, well, you made a covenant, now you're bound to that covenant forever. Well, there are times when it, you get freed from that covenant, and this would be one where he, bro- basically, he has broken the covenant because he has walked away, or she has walked away as the, as the unbeliever. So th- that gives you instructions about that. Are you learning a bunch? 
17 to 24. Now it seems like we make a little bit of a switch, um, I thought anyway, in 17 to, to 26. What do you see here? Or 17 to 24. Yeah, this one was a little interesting. So how do you, yeah, okay, let's just put this, um, this is the one I think that was the most complicated for me to figure out what was he trying to say because he brought in a couple of points that didn't seem to quite fit the subject matter where he was talking about circumcision and uncircumcision and then what was the other one? Um, yeah, whether you're a slave or not a slave. So what do you think his point was to bringing up these two scenarios? If you came into faith and you were already circumcised as a Jew, what are you going to do about that? Can you change it? <laughs> Can you uncircumcise? I, to my understanding, that is not a possibility. So what do you think Paul brings that up for? Yeah. You can't change who you are or where you were at your point in life when you came into faith. God saved you anyway, by the way. He loved you just as you were. And does your physical, biological, or circumstances of life matter at all to God concerning your salvation? Does he care whether you were circumcised or whether you were not circumcised? Does he care whether you were a slave or whether you were not a slave? He saved you just as you were. So he's saying, basically he's just saying, none of that matters. Um, your present earthly condition is not, that, is not what God is concerned about. That's really what he's saying here. He's saying what is important, though, is keeping God's commandment. What's that? Yeah. So it was a super yeah. We. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably confusing for me too. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I didn't bring it up earlier, but I have a little note on here about Judaizers. This was another problem that they were facing as an obstacle that you might want to put underneath. Uh, some of the historical background that would pertain specifically to Jews and the subject of circumcision. And that was Judaizers who were teaching them that, yes, you're saved by grace, but you keep the, also must keep the law. So they, and, you know, uh, is it Galatians that covers and refutes all of that? So there's also that backdrop information you might have wanted to put in. Yeah, we had to go on. Yeah, but the point is, the here, here's what, here's really the, the bottom line, because this is kind of my, my list here. As the Lord has assigned, call, assigned you and as he has called you, walk in that. In other words, it doesn't matter where you're at in this, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you're a slave, whether you're not a slave, 
right? That is what is important to God. He saved you. So walk in that place where you are. And then he goes on to say, but if you can get free, then do. And if you, you know, if you, if you want to move out of that other position, then do. But don't get tangled up into the things of this life, because why? Back to here, Paul's mindset. Look, this world is fleeting. All these things you're worrying about are going to pass away very shortly. So they're not that important. What is important is that you not disobey God's law. So as long as whatever choices you make about your, your circumstances in life, your earthly condition in life, whatever choices you make, make sure it's in, a, in accordance with God's commandments. That's all that you need to know. So in essence, 17 to 24 is, as for your present earthly condition. He doesn't say that, but I'm saying that. See, and that's under divine inspiration, just so you know. <laughs> okay. And then he says, with all that in, in mind, make your own decisions. Make your own decision or choice. You have, you have the right to fix what you can and live with what you can't and God is going to work with you on it and that's not what's important just keep God's commandments but then he, you might want to say keep God's commandments let me look at the, cl the clock here hold on a second it is five after Okay, the recording got a little bit like, am, am I okay? Do you want me to finish these last three ones? Okay, okay, let's finish the last one. We'll do it as quick as I can. All right, so we got through 24. Now we're at 25 to 28. And what is he speaking to there? Yeah, the virgins. And the, or I, I don't know what I did on here on my list. Okay, those, basically those who are betrothed, right? Because he's saying to them, are you bound to what? Now, this was the question I asked you earlier. What does that mean, are you bound to what? He's talking to virgins. What does that mean, are you bound to a wife? If he's speaking to a virgin, how is he bound to a wife? Well, what do you know about the Jewish system and, uh, and also the even the system of that day, even outside of Judaism, but what was, what was the law, what did the law consider to those who were betrothed? Do you remember Mary? She was betrothed to Joseph, and what happened with Joseph went for uh, the census. He took his wife with him, right? Well, at what point he was 